Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen, powered by ELEC 825. We are thrilled to join you on WWDB 860 AM and 97.5 HD2, a part of the Beasley Media Group, ready to help you move into the weekend, talking about all the news in the world of sports. We're going to bring you a best of show this week as we continue to enjoy our time with our families for the Thanksgiving holiday. We hope you have recovered from your turkey coma, enjoyed the football that was on yesterday. Enjoy the football that's on today and this weekend. The Eagles obviously play Buffalo on Sunday, coming in uh, with just one loss on the season, kind of in control in the driver's seat. Uh, Let's get to our first interview talking about the rise of a black quarterback, and uh, we'll be back later. Welcome back from break on the Heart of Sports. Jeff, let's keep the football talk going, and as the season starts, we're going to talk about how we got here, looking at a new book by John Eisenberg called Rocket Men, the Black Quarterbacks Who Revolutionized Pro Football. John, thanks for giving us a little time on the show today. Uh, thanks for having me. It's good to be with you. Three years in the making. Uh, why was now the time to tell this story? Well, uh, I think, uh, number one, I, I'm in Baltimore and uh, uh, have written for uh, various media here for many years. And this is where Lamar Jackson landed in 2018. It was really interesting to follow uh, a guy who, you know, coming out of college was told at the Combine, uh, you know, maybe uh, it was a scout for the Chargers that said, you're going to run the 40 because, uh, you know, you sure would make a, a nice wide receiver in the pros. And he winds up barely getting drafted in the first round. And his second year, he's MVP in the league. I mean, it's an arc not unlike Jalen Hurts in Philadelphia. And so uh, you, you just see this uh, going on and on. I mean, I've been, this is my 11th book. Uh, I've been writing sports for over 40 years. Race has been a constant thread, a narrative in my books, in my columns. And so uh, you throw Ad Lamar on top of that, just right in front of me. And I thought, you know, this is a big story. It's a big canvas. But I think it's really interesting that, uh, you know, 100 years into the NFL, uh, 57 years into the Super Bowl era, it took for two black starting quarterbacks. How did how did that happen? How did we get here? And I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, there's been enough trouble with uh, getting uh, the accurate history uh, rolled out in uh, today's America, I will say. And so I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, hey, this is something that happened. There were a lot of issues for blacks at the quarterback position for many decades in the NFL. Let's tell that story and uh, and make sure that people understand this did happen. And maybe it's better now in some respects, but let's not forget what happened before. So how, you know, you mentioned, how did that happen? So the, the obvious question to you is, how did it happen? Uh, you know, as somebody who watched football in the 70s and saw the evolution uh, of the black quarterback and saw Warren Moon play and saw Doug Williams play, wh- what was it about that era that led to the, the understanding that, that anybody could play quarterback? Well, what happened was uh, a couple people in the league finally said, I mean, there was a, the, it was baked into the DNA of pro football that uh, you didn't use black quarterbacks. Uh, I mean, there were none. Marlon Briscoe started five games for the Denver Broncos, uh, not in the NFL, by the way, in the AFL in 1968. And after that, there was nobody. And so in the real history of the sport, there'd just been nothing. So what it took was a few people saying, I, I am not going to buy 
sort of the myths that existed, many of which were just racist. That's the only way to put it. Uh, you know, that a black quarterback maybe wasn't smart enough uh, to have that position in the pros or he couldn't lead. He didn't have discipline. There was all this stuff. You go back and, uh, you know, some of the young scouts from that era will tell you that's what they heard from the old scouts back in that era. So what it took was a few guys in the league just saying, I'm not buying it. I mean, that's, it, it has to start somewhere. You remember the coach Chuck Knox, okay? Uh, you know, nice coach in the 70s. Is known for a lot of other things. Well, in the mid-70s, as coach of the L.A. Rams, he looked at his quarterback group and said, you know, James Harris is the guy I'm going to put on the field. I don't care that he's black. And he put him out there and uh, was in the NFC Championship game twice with James, who's really the first guy to get any sort of chance. And so it took guys like that. It took Joe Gibbs, uh, not as the coach of the Redskins years later, but as the offensive coordinator in Tampa. Uh, they, they told him, we, have the fr- we, we, we can draft anyone we want. They were really bad in the late 70s, and they scouted a few guys. He went down to Grambling, talked to Doug Williams, and he came back and he told them, you need to draft this guy. This guy uh, is going to be a winner in this league. He can do the job. Uh, I don't care what all the other stuff is. And so it took guys like that just sort of opening the door. And then it took those players proving that the, that all those myths were wrong. I mean, James Harris, Doug Williams, Randall Cunningham in Philadelphia, you know, proving that, yes, a black quarterback can play and win in the NFL. I'll get to Randall in a little bit. He was one of my favorites. That was like my wheelhouse of growing up with football. But you mentioned James Harris, and he was somebody you got time with, and you, and you write about in the book, and, and, and there was some stuff in there. He had no contract. He was he was in Buffalo at the start, and, and the team gave him a job cleaning his teammates' cleats. This is the guy yeah. that became the starting quarterback for the Rams. There were no black quarterbacks at the time. He was in the AFL before the merger. Can you talk about... You know, you had said that it was sort of understood and and baked in that that they couldn't be quarterback. Can you talk about some of those hurdles? We talked about the people who gave them opportunities, but what were the actual hurdles that they were facing that you found out there? Well, the hurdles, the the hurdles, uh, you know, you really veer off into, uh, you know, a serious discussion, you know, of race in America and what white perception of black was. Uh, and, and, and not always, you know, obviously I, I'm very hesitant to paint with a broad brush here, obviously, because the late sixties is civil rights era and there was an awful lot going on. And, and, uh, you know, a lot of young, uh, African-Americans in particular were pushing back against a lot of this stuff, uh, at that era. And that's a really important part of it, that that's where a lot of the pushback started, but the hurdles were the preconceived notions, uh, uh you know, that so many people had. And, you know, it's sad to say, and I've got this in my book with, uh, you know, a couple people uh, that were uh, not in sports. Lori, I mean, it was true in other in other parts of society. I mean, you're talking about black leadership. Uh, you know, would white America give black leadership? That's it was true in the law. It was true in business. There were no CEOs until uh, I believe it was uh, the 80s. Uh, uh, you know, the first Fortune 500 CEO uh, in the military. Uh, you know, the, there was also very, very slow to evolve in that. So the, the hurdle was really the belief in, and there's no doubt in the NFL, uh, it, it is a, uh, you know, it's a, it's a white power structure. It still is for the most part. And, uh, you know, very slow to say that, you know, to give, put a black person in a leadership position 
uh, it was actually in keeping with a lot of other realms of American society. How important was Warren Moon to the development and, and trust in, in black quarterbacks? Warren Moon didn't even start his career in the NFL. He started in the Canadian Football League. Undrafted out of it. He just won the Rose Bowl at the University of Washington, and he did not get drafted. Uh, very typical of that era. A lot of, uh, you know, the draft was not a pretty place for black quarterbacks. So he goes to Canada. He wins five Grey Cups. I mean, he's uh, almost immediately the player that he would become in the NFL and uh, just dominates that league. And he does come to the Houston Oilers in 1984. He is the only black starting quarterback in the NFL. Uh, Doug Williams had spent five years in Tampa at that point and had basically been run out of town, was out of the NFL. He was playing for, in the USFL. And so Warren Moon was it. So I, I don't think you can stress enough what Warren Moon did because he comes back to the NFL, there's a bidding war and he's the highest paid player in the league. Suddenly a black quarterback out of nowhere did. I mean, no one saw that coming. Warren certainly didn't see it coming. And from the get go, the Oilers were not good for a few years, but they gave him a leash and they let him play. And from the get go, he was what he would become, which was very cool in the pocket with a great arm, uh, the ability to evade pressure run, and just a pro's pro, cool in the saddle. And so uh, a great player. And then the Oilers got good. And, and he had an incredible career that lasted into the 2000s. Uh, you know, and he threw for almost 50,000 yards. And he's in the Hall of Fame. He's the only black quarterback in the Hall of Fame. So just for year after year, Warren Moon, just uh, if you were looking at the NFL or the quarterback position from a racial perspective, Warren Moon was like a one-man gang which was, you know, those stereotypes are wrong. All you have to do is look at me because I can play this position in the NFL. I can win. And so, uh, you know, he and, and to this day, he is still sort of uh, carrying the torch. Anything that happens, he is the first guy to step up and speak out about things that, that he didn't think are right. You know, Jeff and I talked earlier in the show about sort of the state of college football, and I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on the role that college football has played in both perpetuating the problem and then changing the NFL now to create opportunities. At first, they weren't really preparing mobile quarterbacks for the NFL style. So you had these very talented black quarterbacks who are not in a pro style offense. Now, all of a sudden, you fast forward, we're in the NFL, and the traditional, quote, pro style offers more mobile quarterbacks. You know, watching the, the game last night, you've got Patrick Mahomes with a run-pass option having to decide everything. So it used to be they didn't have the intellect, quote, to do it. And now the game has moved to they're so well prepared for it because of how they've played coming up. Yeah, that's a key part of the story. It's a really interesting part of the story. Uh, you know, obviously, it's all about race. That part of it is a little bit less about race because it is about the evolution of football in some respects. Uh, and yes, uh, what's really interesting about it is uh, college football influenced the NFL. You would think the NFL, the greatest form of football in the world, they, they decide everything, right, about what should be prevailing styles and everything. But no, in this case, they were very slow for years and years, decades. The drop-back passers, all they wanted, the drop-back passers, what won Super Bowls, 
Everybody wanted that. And if you were mobile, it was actually held against you for the most part. Just a few outliers. They didn't want you running. Uh, you know, the linemen didn't like it. The coaches didn't like it and everything. So it finally started. College football started to change for sure and, and bring in more of the run pass option. And, uh, you know, not just the college option that like came out of the 70s and the 80s, you know, actual pass and run options. Donovan McNabb in Philadelphia was another one who was good at that coming out of college. And so years, what finally, to me, what finally changed, the NFL changed and it bubbled up from college, no question. You see it in the generation that landed in the NFL in 2011 and 12 with Cam Newton, Colin Kaepernick as a as a young quarterback, an unbelievable player. Uh, and then Russell Wilson and Robert Griffin III. You've got four guys in a two-year span that came in they were all like that they were mobile they, they, they could still throw, they could lead, they could do everything. And the NFL, I think, finally said, we are not going to take these guys and make them drop back quarterbacks. We're, we're going to change our offense to let them do what they do best. And from to me, from that point forward, 2011 and 12, to where we are now, you've seen a real evolution in the position. Not so much before that, Michael Vick a little bit, but since then, a real change. And that has definitely helped the black quarterback uh, uh, you know, a lot of them come out of college. They're now uh, what they're what they're playing in college is what's happening in the pros. And so, yes, as you said, they are uber prepared for it. And uh, it, it's just and as a result, a lot of times, look what we're seeing. You know, three out of the first four picks in the last draft, black quarterbacks. Uh, so the the situation is cha- it has changed and it's changing dramatically for the better. And the style of football, I think, has a lot to do with it. You know, in reading your book, it, one of the things. <laughs> It didn't necessarily surprise me and made me sad was was that it doesn't seem like quarterbacks have changed over the years or that anything happened with black quarterbacks that changed. It just seems that perceptions change. Is that, is that one of the things that, that you took out of researching the book? You are so right about that. <laughs> and, and perceptions change. And the other thing, I mean, that's changed. Yes, perceptions have changed. It's totally key. What they're capable of doing, they haven't changed at all. You know, opportunity is what is changing. This in My book, to me, is a story of opportunity opportunity. You can go back to the very first uh, modern black starting quarterback, Marlon Briscoe, okay, come plays for the Broncos five games in the late 60s. He starts. Uh, It's in some respects not much different than Lamar Jackson 50 years later. You know, uh, it's skill set that's not coming from a power five school. He was at the University of Omaha, even smaller than Lamar at Louisville. He's got a lot of talent. He can run, he can throw. The, you know, there's a lot of doubts about him. Uh, the skill set is a little out of keeping with what the norms are, quote unquote, in the NFL. Gets a chance as a rookie and he shines. That's the same story for Marlon Briscoe and Lamar Jackson. OK, 50 years apart. What happens to uh, Lamar? is that the Ravens say, we like what we see. Uh, we're going to change our offense. We're going to give you, we're going to put you, make you the starter and you're, you're our guy. And in his second year, he wins the MVP award. What happened 50 years earlier to Marlon Briscoe is the Broncos said, you're never going to play quarterback again. They had quarterback meetings after the season. And so that was a fluke. All our white quarterbacks got hurt. You're out. And uh, they didn't even invite him to quarterback meetings. And he had to change team, change teams and change 
positions to have a career. So to me, that shows you that the talent, as you said, it's it's not a lot different than what's gone on. It's 50 years apart. It's about perception and opportunity. You know, I, I don't know that reading before this book and even talking this interview that I recognize the role that Philadelphia played in the steps along the way here. I mean, if you look at it, you had Randall in the 80s and early 90s with Buddy saying, let Randall be Randall. He wasn't going to try to force him into the stereotypical quarterback. Then we draft Donovan and it changes the perception. He's a top pick and, and he is not, he, while he ran, he was a pocket quarterback who could run. Then you fast forward and, and we had Michael Vick, but it wasn't the Michael Vick experience. It was the Michael Vick reclamation project. And now we have the next step with the first black quarterback in the Super Bowl with Jalen Hurts here. Can you just talk about some of the quarterbacks we've seen come through here? I would say Philadelphia is, is at the right at the top of the, the, the pivot points in this story. <clears throat> the Eagles, it's, uh, it, it, it's great what's happened in Philadelphia over the years is uh, the, the willingness to, to not bend or to not give in to stereotypes and certainly started with Randall. And, and actually, I, uh, I quote in the book a, a historian out of Chicago, a fellow by the name of Jack Silverstein, who, has, who, who did an unbelievable dip, deep dive into this, uh, uh, the story of black quarterbacks from a, just a numeric, the stats, a numerical perspective. How many, what teams have played, how many guys, numbers, percentages over the years of starts. And the Eagles are at the top, right at the top. And, uh, you know, he what the, some of the, the, the realizations that me that he made, the what came out of his study, his point was that what what was good for there's some franchises where it's just been very slow to happen at all for different reasons. But in the ones where they they went to a black quarterback relatively early and had success, have been much more open to going back to back, going back to black quarterbacks. The Eagles would be exhibit A. Uh, with Randall Cunningham, uh, after he played and had a had a had a great decade there, I mean that that was uh, that was no longer an issue. It we actually, was, you know, we had who's, Rodney. who's the quarterback that we want, and so they've gone back to that numerous times, and that's great. I mean, you know, there's a long legacy of of good black quarterbacks in Philadelphia, and they're all good quarterbacks. So uh, that, that's that's what's in Hurts. You know, uh, goodness knows where he's going to go. He looks tremendous, and. Uh, and of course, you know, as always, uh, the, the little part of you wonder whether things are still going on. A second round draft pick. So uh, you wonder whether franchise quarterbacks. I mean, there's a lot in my book about draft and perceptions and uh, so many good guys that didn't go in the first round. Dak Prescott, fourth round draft pick from the very beginning has been the man in Dallas, however many years. Uh, the stories like that are not uncommon. So, uh, but it's, uh, you know, certainly the Eagles have been right at the top of the teams that have uh, really been at the forefront of this, of, of changing the perceptions. All right. For, for those that are listening on the radio, they can't see that you're wearing a purple shirt. So uh, I'm assuming that uh, Ravens related, but, but you have some Philadelphia ties yourself. You went to Penn and, and, and were lucky enough to be there during a pretty exciting period in Penn basketball. How, how did you, how did you get your start and how, how, how did you develop this love of passion of, of telling the stories of sports? Well, you are right. Uh, I, uh, I, uh, was at Penn in the late seventies and it's my year 
class of 79 that went to the final four. I was there for the Daily Pennsylvanian and uh, with uh, we came up a little short against Michigan State uh, and uh, I think by about 40 points. But anyway, they, they they did make the final four. And so great thing. Those are my classmates, Tony Price and, and all those guys. And so that was a great experience for me. I had a great time, needless to say. It was a wonderful school, the Daily Pennsylvanian. Uh, I worked with Rich Hoffman, who wrote uh, columns for forever in Philadelphia. And there's a bunch of us out and about who still doing stuff. So that was a great experience for me. And, you know, I got into journalism uh, after that uh, in Dallas, which is my hometown. Uh, and uh, so I was five years at the Dallas Times Herald. And then I came to Baltimore and uh, they hired me at the Baltimore Sun. I was there for years uh, and, uh, you know, for 27 years, I believe it was, wrote thousands of columns. And and along the way, I started writing books. I just enjoyed that. I, I, I took that on as a challenge. Uh, my mother owned a bookstore growing up. I, uh, I was a reader. I, I was an English major. I wanted to write books. So uh, really have had two rails of writing for a number of years. This is my 11th book. And so I've stayed at it, writing a lot of sports history, narrative nonfiction. And uh, I've been very fortunate. There's a lot of people that write. It's hard to get good contracts, good publishers, and yeah, get people to notice. So I don't take it for granted. I'm always pleased when anyone wants to talk to me about these books because, uh, you know, that's uh, it's an honor, really, you know, to put something out there and have people pay attention to it. Well, you, you, you've covered so many different sports. You've covered World Series. You've covered, you know, Kentucky Derbies, things like that. Where does going to a basketball game at the Palestra rank? Oh, man, right at the top. The, the, uh, the, uh, the Palestra in its heyday, uh, I was a little kid from Dallas, Texas. It came up to Philadelphia in 1975, the fall of 1975, the first big five doubleheader at the Palestra. I didn't even know what was going on. It was Penn against somebody, and then it was Villanova and St. Joe's in the nightcap. And the place was packed. And, and of course, a great rivalry in the Big Five, the, those two. And it was just madness in, in the palestra and just two hours of screaming. I can't remember the game. I just remember the crowd. And I thought, this is like the most amazing thing I've ever seen that, uh, you know, it was just so intense and passionate. And, uh, uh, you know, the Palestra uh, was, uh, you know, it was just an, an incredible historic place uh, to watch a basketball game. The fact that they're still playing there was incredibly cool. And, uh, you know, I have many memories of some great games uh, that, that Penn played there against some really, really good teams. And so uh, I, I just think it's a fan. I, I mean, Years later, I made sure my son, sports loving, when he was in high school, I said, one night I packed him in the car and said, we're going up, we're going to drive up to Philadelphia, we're going to see Penn play Temple. And he looked at me, I said, we're going to do it. And uh, so he, we sat behind one of the baskets, he, he loved every minute of it. I mean, it really is quite the experience. We're glad that Philadelphia could prepare you so well for this journey, telling all of these different stories. <laughs> Our listeners can purchase the book, Rocket Men, the Black Quarterbacks Who Revolutionized Pro Football, anywhere books are sold. John, so great to get some time with you to talk about this continuing journey. Uh, my pleasure. I loved it. Thanks very much. Operating engineers are the men and women that move mountains. And the Engineers Labor Employer Cooperative, ELEC, puts them to work. They create opportunities for the men, women, and union signatory contractors of Local 825, repaving our roads, keeping our homes bright and warm, and even building our favorite team stadium. We understand infrastructure, 
That's why ELAC and Local 825 are ready to get to work. All right, Jeff, let's talk something different. Let's bring on to the show Arthur Smith, Emmy-nominated television producer, creator of shows like American Ninja Warrior, Hell's Kitchen, a much more author of the new book, Reach Hard Lessons and Learn Truths from a Lifetime in Television. Arthur, congratulations on the book. Thanks for giving us some time. Oh, my pleasure. Looking forward to it, guys. You know, reading this book and prepping for it, um, you said the stories you selected aren't necessarily the biggest or funniest. They support the message of the book. So talk to us about the message you wanted to share and how you decided you wanted to tell it. Well, you know, um, I believe in the power of reach because uh, I think when you reach, you realize uh, you find out what you're capable of. And when you reach, you realize the difference between a, a pipe dream and what you haven't dared to try just yet. So all the stories that are selected talk about how to use the power reach when you're overreaching um, and things like that. Um, yes, there are stories about uh, Magic Johnson and Donald Trump and Gretzky and Paul Allen and Dick Clark, Little Richard Simon, Cal, a bunch of people. And But all of them have this connection to what I call the power of reach. You know, I, I believe um, the more we try, the luckier we get. So um, I hope this book is uh, entertaining, but I really hope it's inspiring as well. You know, I, so growing up, you at a young age, you knew you wanted to get into television and you applied to be at the CBC. Um, you knew what you wanted to do, but but they weren't really ready for you when you came <laughs> here. T- talk about your start at the CBC and how you kind of talked yourself into a position that didn't really exist. Well, you know, the expression ignorance is bliss. Well, that was me, really ignorant. I didn't understand how the business worked, uh, but I knew I wanted in. And, um, you know, um, you said I applied, you know, to CBC. Well, I actually stalked somebody. (laughs) You know, I actually waited outside. Uh, You could probably get arrested for what I did, you know, today. But I was actually waited outside someone's office who uh, went to my university. That He went to the, you know, my university 25 years ago. And it was my one connection. I had no real connection to the entertainment business other than I wanted to work in it. Uh, I love sports and sports is my second love for television's my first. But at the time, you know, that's where I thought I would fit in. That's where I thought I would work. And I literally waited outside of uh, someone's office for five hours or so. Um, and uh, till he came out, and um, I got him in the hallway and said, hey, can I have 10 minutes of your time? And he said, I'll give you five. And it turned out to be 90 minutes. And uh, then he began to tell me that, um, you know, I, he, well, he asked me, he actually asked me a question. He said, what, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be a producer. And he said, well, that's a good life goal. You know, what do you want to do now? And I said, well, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go. And he goes, well, you know, that ignorance, ignorance again. And he goes, that's uh, enthusiasm. That's not the way. Yeah, that's not the way it works. He said, you have to be a production assistant. You got to work in local news. And then if you're lucky, you'll get the national news and be a production. And then if you're lucky, you'll get be, become a production assistant network sports. And, and I said, well, how long does that take? And he goes, you want the fast track? And I go, sure. And he goes, five years. And I go, well, I'm not interested. Once again, ignorant, not knowing any better. And uh, but I did enough in that meeting to get a meeting with his boss, who's the head of CBC Sports. And yeah, the story is covered in the book and it's 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 all kind of nuts. It's all kind of like when I think back on it, I can't actually be, believe it happened to me. Um, and, you know, six months after graduating, I was the replay director on Hockey Night in Canada. And you guys know um, Hockey Night in Canada for a Canadian boy is like 
that's that's Monday Night Football times 10. So years later, I'm doing the L.A. Olympics, my first time in L.A. And then if things aren't crazy enough, they make me head of the sports division when I'm 28. And um, anyhow, it's 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 just like I said, I, I everything that's worked for me is when I put myself out there, when I wasn't afraid to take chances, you know, when I wasn't afraid to express my ideas. Every time I walk into a meeting, I don't you know, whether it was with Dick Clark, who ended up moving me to L.A. or whether it was that first meeting at CBC Sports, I walked in there with actual ideas. I actually walked in with like what my white paper because, I, you know, people say they have good ideas. So I said, you know what? I'll just try this. And, you know, and, you know, the funny thing is when I had that big meeting with CBC, the second meeting with CBC, and here's a story that's not in the book, but there's a, when I had my second meeting at at CBC, um, you know, I had to impress these people and I was handing out these papers that I had written about, you know, what, what I would do with CBC sports. That's in the book, that part of the story is, but what's not in the book is when I became head of CBC sports, my first night, I'm sitting in the in the corner office, and right away, I want to look into everybody's personnel files. What do they make? What are, what, are, what are the complaints that have been filed? And I find my file. I found my file, and in it is like all the human resource, the human resources paperwork from years ago, and the papers that I handed out as that lunatic 22 year old was in the file, and it was just it was just you know it was kind of cool that it went full circle, and uh, so. Anyhow, you know, it's like, like I said, all of this came from extending myself and something happened to me and we're not going to reveal it today, but something happened to me, Jason, I appreciate you reading the book and thank you, Jeff, for having me on. You know, something happened to me when I was nine years old and I, when I retraced my steps, I believe that that changed my life. I grew up the shyest of all kids. My I was the kid that my parents worried about, Would not, you know, we moved five miles away to another suburb and it took me weeks before I left the house. I mean, I had some real issues with that, but then something happened to me when I was nine that forced me to step out of my comfort zone. And and listen, when you're nine years old, you don't realize you know what's going on subconsciously, but it it, it changed me. And then when I really reach, like I said, when I retrace my steps, I look back and I know from that moment when I was nine years old. So readers, you got to find out what happened to me. It's kind of well, crazy. Well, here here's my curiosity about you going through your own personnel file and looking at the stuff that you had when you were 22. So the person yeah. that you are now and the person that you are when you read those files, what what would you have thought if 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 that 22-year-old had come into your office? Well, um listen, I'm I'm I believe in um passion and I believe in intensity and when I see a young person come up who's got who's really going for it, right away I take notice. Um, the worst thing that someone could do when they come into my office is number one, like things that kill the deal right away is that if you don't know a lot about the company that you're applying to, that's, you know, that does it for me. And then I always appreciate someone who puts themselves out there, someone who's done their homework and who puts themselves out there because that, that tells me how passionate they are. They, and, um, and so, you know, it's one of the great things about doing the book and, and, um, is, is that I hope it inspires people to reach. And, and, I, and I did it because every time I lecture, every time I go to universities and talk to 20 year olds, 20 something year olds, it always comes up this power of reach. Um, and, and I, I, you know, I, like I said, I really hope it, 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 it inspires people. Um, and, um, 
Yeah, it's funny, you know, one of the things about running a company like I do, which is for 23 years and and being, you know, I was head of CBC Sports 35 years ago. So I've been in a position of leadership. Uh, I love the process of mentoring people. I love that. And, you know, it gives me such great joy when I look back at some of the people who started our, at our company as production assistants, who are executive producers, who started at our company as associate producers, who are running networks. And, um, you know, so that that was one of the prime motivators for me writing the book. I, I'm hoping that this book is 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 the beginning of a new chapter in my life where I spend more of my time um, mentoring and, and giving it back and paying it forward. And listen, I, I've done 200 shows for 50 networks in, in this 23-year-old company. And prior to that, thousands of hours of sports programming. And yes, I still love it. But I want to I want to shift the balance a little bit more and and spend more time, like I said, giving back. In fact, all of my proceeds from the book are going to the Reach Foundation. Uh, the Reach Foundation is a, a is a thing I set up, which gives money to half a dozen charities who uh, lift people up in some way so that that they can reach in their own lives. Um, you know, there's a lot to, to to be learned from this book and from you when you're when you're involved in being a producer, you have to make a lot of decisions and sometimes you have to take some risks. And sometimes those, those, those stories are actually really good stories. Could you just tell us a little bit about the story of, of, of the decision that you made related to Wayne Gretzky and, and what happened with, with Mr. Cherry? <laughs> well, me and, me and Mr. Cherry, you know, I could, I could write a book of my life. You know, me and Mr. Cherry could be a whole other book. And uh, I can tell you some stuff that's not in the book. Because um, it's crazy, because I've almost suspended him. I actually suspended him once, but we got into a lot of. I was always like, "Please, Don, don't make me suspend you." Every time I suspend you, I like, "I'm, I'm going to be the most hated man in the country." Please don't do that. You're so beloved. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, when I was uh, I was doing the Summer Olympics in Korea, and um, and um, you know, I knew they they had told me I was going to be head of the sports division when I came back, and I saw. I was watching CNN in my hotel room in Seoul, and I saw that Gretzky got traded, you know, know, one of the biggest trades in hockey ever, and he got traded from the Edmonton Oilers to the Los Angeles Kings, and Los Angeles Kings, and in Canada, I mean, you know, there was no no bigger news story. So I I I call I I immediately went for my hockey schedule and saw that Edmonton was playing or LA was playing in Edmonton the first time that Wayne would return in another uniform to Edmonton, in. you know, in October, and I called the head of CBC's, uh, the head of the CBC, um, and I said, "Hey, listen, uh, we should be doing this game. Everyone's going to want to see what how the crowd reacts and everything else like that." And they said, "Great idea, great idea." Um, you're, but by the way, you're not head of sports yet. And I go, I, "I know, but I'm going to be when I get back. So can we just try this thing?" And uh, and they said, um, "Well, let's see when it's on." And they go, "Well, it's on. Um, um, it's on a Wednesday night, hockey night in Canada, Saturday night, you know, we, we don't do games on Wednesday. And I, and I go, well, it's time to make an exception. We need to try this. And, and they go, well, let's see what, what you're scheduled against. And I go, you're scheduled against the world series. And I go, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. This Wayne Gretzky in a regular season hockey game coming back to Edmonton is bigger than the world series in Canada. Right. Right. And they said, Hey, this is going to be your first big decision as the head of sports. I said, yes. Because I started as head of sports on October 6th. So I go to tell Cherry <laughs> that we're doing this game. And he goes, I'm not going. And he says, I, I don't want to go. 
He goes, I have a hockey name. He's, you know, Don's a traditional hockey man. He's a purist. And, and, and also with the broadcast, Hockey Night Canada is Saturday, at eight o'clock. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going. Um, anyhow, he, he went <laughs> and, uh, but he wasn't happy. And, um, you know, in Ron McLean's book, Ron McLean and Don, Ron McLean is the co-host or the host and Don is Don because there's no category to put Don in. Anyhow, um, and it's in, Ron, it's in Ron's book that how, how much they didn't want to go to the game. And uh, as it turned out, the game um, beat um, uh, the, the game beat the World Series. So the, the Gretzky game beat the World Series, uh, not by a lot, but just enough to to make it a good move. And I mean, what else was CBC going to put on up against the World Series anyhow? So but the thing with Cherry, I'll just tell you one other quick story of, of something that's not in the book. So exclusive to the uh, the heart of sports, Philadelphia. <laughs> here you go. Haven't told the story in years. So so okay. So here's what happened. So I was you know as head of sports, you know that Gretzky game really worked, and I was trying to do more special edition games and double headers. Now people in Canada like you know it's they're still doing it. So whatever I did 35 years ago is still going on. There's double header. They've shifted hockey night in Canada to seven 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 thirty. You know, and so they can get the late games in. It's a whole change in schedule, but. Honestly, it was it was a fight. It was a fight with the owners of the teams. Anyhow, there was a game. I said, you know what? I want to try to do a Sunday afternoon game. I want the, the LA Kings were playing the Quebec Nordiques in um, and and I and I went to Don because you know Don is this one of the, he is one of the big stars of the show. I said, Don, you got to go to Quebec, and he didn't love Quebec, that province. So um, <laughs> not as much as as he disliked the, the the Scandinavian and Russians, but that's a whole other thing. Right behind that, probably Quebec. So I said to Don, you're going to Quebec? And he goes, um, no. And once again, I said, Don, you have a contract. You need to go. And he went. And so I'm watching the game at home. The game, unfortunately, is not a very good game. It's a blowout, as a matter of fact. And I think the Kings were, I, I can't remember the exact score, but the Kings were up like six to one after the first period. Game's kind of over. And we go into the first intermission for Don Cherry's segment, which is called Coach's Corner. And and he said, and he's talking, and Ron McLean goes, What do you think of the game? And Don Cherry says, This is what happens when Hockey Night in Canada is on a Sunday. And he looks into the camera and he goes, Right, Arthur. And and I'm sitting at home with my wife. And 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 Ron McLean, you know, being the consummate professional, goes, You mean Ron? He goes, No, I mean Arthur. And he's like pointing his finger. I'm sitting there like my my chest is like like tightening up. Uh, you know what do you do? What do you do? And I think that was the time he got suspended. I know it was once. So, um, but anyhow, um, but you know he he was a he, he was a lovely man. You know, of course, after he apologized and he says, I you know I just lost it and whatever. And I was just so upset that we had a lousy game on and I was in Quebec on a Sunday. And I said, a lot of people like to be in Quebec on a Sunday. What are you complaining? About? Anyhow. So, yeah, but but look look at the bright side. There are people that believe the TV's talking to them. It was actually talking to you. <laughs> yeah. You know, and if people read the book, they can see about the first Gretzky game back, the exchange that you ended up having with him in the elevator, which we'll leave yeah. for the book. But I wanted to ask you, you eventually you say you shifted to non-scripted, but if I look back at what you were doing when you were covering the Olympics with Ben Johnson and Carl Lewis, you were doing non-scripted storytelling all the way back when you were covering sports. Can you talk about how 
that seems to have been the genesis for like, we like to find the story behind the sports. It seems like that's what you're always looking to do. And that paid off for you with Ben Johnson in the Olympics. Can you talk about that? Well, I'm, I'm always, you know, when I was a sports guy, I was kind of like an entertainment guy doing sports and I, and I love stories and, you know, maybe it's because I grew up in a house filled of, with women, with, with, uh, two sisters. And now I have two daughters and none of them who are sports fans, but I always was trying to reach out to them. And maybe, maybe I'm just a big mush ball because I just want, I just want to connect, you know, people to the emotional side of sports and tell great stories. You know, sports was a great vehicle for that. I mean, I love doing the games. Of course, I love covering the games, but you know what? I really was more excited about doing the opens and doing the story behind what was going on. That's what really excited me. And uh, that's, you know, um, you know, when I'm working in, when I was working in sports, I missed, um, I wanted to do entertainment programming. And then I went, when I went into entertainment programming with Dick Clark, I missed doing sports. And then when I went back to sports at Fox Sports, where I was head of programming and production, you know, I missed entertainment. And, and that's why my company is, has been great, because I have the ability to do everything and you know the show that we do american ninja warrior is kind of like the blending of both of my worlds and i mean it's a it's a shock that we're in our 15th season of this obstacle course show but um but uh but you know um you know listen some i believe that you know storytelling is storytelling whether you're working in sports and entertainment and it's not a coincidence that a lot of the people who work at, at my company are ex Fox sports alums because I like sports producers have to get the story in the moment and they have to react in the moment. You know, when you're when you're producing an entertainment program, you a lot of times you're creating the fire and then you're covering the fire. And, and, and when you're in live sports, you know, you're just reacting to it. So um, anyhow, I, you know what? I completely forgot what your question is, but this is, uh, this I was, is I, it, it happens all the time. <laughs> uh, yeah. Jeff, Jeff doesn't listen to my questions. Either, so don't worry about it. You fit right in on the show. I, I was just sort of asking you, you approached that games where you were covering the yeah. Ben Johnson, Carl Lewis yeah. uh, competition in the story. It was, and then eventually you got to tell a totally different story yeah. of Ben Johnson, which you all won awards for. Yeah. When did you know that the story that you had, wasn't the story that it was going to be. Yeah. I mean, listen, it, it's all about understanding the audience. It's, uh, it's something that I've always believed in. And I learned even more when I worked with Dick Clark about how he stayed connected to the whole country and not just what was going on in LA and what's going on in New York. And, and so I, I honestly felt that when Ben tested positive, um, we, which, you know, you know, you know, this Jason, it was, it was, I, I stopped covering the Olympics and fo totally focused on the the fallout of, of the Ben testing positive. And I and I took a lot of crap from it in our control room with my colleagues. And they were saying, Arthur, you got to get back to covering the Olympics. And I said, no, 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 this is the story. And I said, you know, really shows about sports generally don't do as well as the sports themselves. You know, pregame shows, they do well, but they don't do as well as the game. You know, um, the game always is the thing. But in this case, the game, the games weren't the thing and and like i said everybody was uh you know not everybody but a lot of people were were on me and i i just trusted my gut and you know that night when ben johnson won the gold medal and beat carl lewis um it was the highest rated night in canadian television history and then three days later ben testing positive uh beat it <laughs> And that became the highest rated night in, in Canadian television history. And that record held for a long time. 
and it was it was broken in 2010 when when Canada beat U.S. in the gold medal game in hockey in the Winter Olympics, uh, which I still think has the record, but I'm not I'm not 100 percent sure. But I've, I've been living in the States for 30 years. But uh, anyhow, but I but I know that like somebody somebody had to tell me that the record was broken. And I, and I was records are meant to be broken. I was OK with it, especially because Canada won the gold medal, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I have I have dual citizenship. I root for the USA in everything, in except everything, Canada, except hockey. hockey. Because <laughs> Canadians, that's all, that's all we got, man. That's all we got. We got wait, hockey. wait. What about curling? We got <laughs> curling, but no one cares. <laughs> so, <laughs> so one of the questions that I had, and that I always, you know, we've talked to other producers about before, is the struggle of. Yes, the, as you talked about before, the game itself is the story, but the storytelling has become a much larger part of of sports on TV than it used to be. I mean, you see things like thirty for thirty and and, and those kinds of things all the time. Is, is there ever a struggle as a producer to say I don't want to overwhelm the event with with a backstory? Yes, yes, and and yes, there is there is a chance you can. There's not a chance. It happens. It happens. You you have. To, I mean, it's all about the pacing of the show. There's a little bit of a science behind that. Um, it's hard to define, you know, um, in a short conversation. But there. But but you're right. It, it and and you know there is a tendency sometimes for people to overproduce and and please get on with the event. You're killing me. You know, like like enough enough. And I feel like you you know. Not every store, not every Olympic package needs to be someone who's sick or overcome something. And you can you can overwhelm an audience. It's something. Listen, we face it on American Ninja Warrior all the time. There are times when we don't run packages on certain athletes because it's not warranted, and we feel like we can cover their story with a quick soundbite or just a quick setup. Um, and yeah, it's it's really about pacing pacing your show. You have to do enough, but you know um, you're right, Jeff you know, you can, you can do too much. And so um, it's something that we measure. It's something that we do research, you know, we do research on too, but you have to trust your gut. You have to trust your gut because a lot of times the, even the research, you know, the research sometimes says too many packages, too many profiles, which I never believe because um, they're saying that, that that moment that you saw was only made bigger because you knew something about that person because you actually cared about them. I mean, there's no logical reason for an obstacle course show to be on primetime in NBC. Come on. There's, it, it just doesn't make any sense. And had we pitched it to NBC, it would never been on. It was a, through a strange set of circumstances that we ended up on NBC. And it, it was just, a, honestly, it was a stroke of luck. Some, listen, I believe we make, our good, we make our good fortune. Sometimes when you're reaching, good things happen. And, and that's exactly what happened with Ninja Warrior. I still can't believe we're on NBC and we've been nominated for seven, seven Emmy Awards, considering that the show was a, a little show on a cable network. And um, how pr- how proud are you of, of trusting your gut to make that decision and where it ended up? Um, yeah, no, I'm proud. I'm pr- sure. Of course, I'm proud about it. You know, it's like you actually you know, put more into that show. Right. If I remember with the prep, uh, you wanted more from the, the network and you did more to make American Ninja Warrior. Sure. Pop, correct you did your own investing of that yeah well I, I i believed in it i guess yes uh yeah we put our own money into it because we had one shot at being um this trial it wasn't even really a trial it was just an act of synergy for comcat 
American Ninja Warrior started on this network called G4. Network doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> and 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 uh, I was happy. I was happy doing that. Like, you know, to use a sports analogy, sometimes you, you have network home runs and sometimes you have singles on smaller networks. And I'm okay with it. It's part of the portfolio. I was happy to do the show on G4. I'm happy to, you know, uh, have that, ha- have another series. And, but while we were doing what I think was our third season, Comcast buys NBC. Comcast owns E and uh, Comcast owns Philadelphia. No, 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 I'm kidding. <laughs> Comcast owns E. Comcast owns E. As someone and who has my office across the street from the two huge buildings that they have, yeah, they do. There you go. <laughs> we can see there them out the go. window of the station. I know, I know where I'm talking to. Anyhow, Comcast owns E and G4. And, um, and, and so as an act of synergy, purely as an act of synergy, never, ever expecting we're going to be on NBC. That's nuts. So we just said, please put this one episode of Ninja on, um, you know, um, on, on NBC. And, you know, Jason, you correctly pointed out, we went to NBC and said, listen, we want to broaden the show out. We want to do more packages. We want to dress the show up. And, you know, we asked NBC for some money too. And they said, uh, no, it's fine. We'll just take the show and like NBC was kind of writing this show off like it's a one-off it's never going to be on our air again and 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 anyhow we invested our own money and and made the show a little a little more special and um the show goes on wins its time period and then NBC says let's do more and then we're in our 15th season fast forward crazy 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 you talk about following the research. I drive Jeff crazy with ratings. Uh, that's not his bag, but I am very fascinated by the changing media landscape. As somebody who in that 88 Olympics was taking VHS tapes out for people to run stories that now calls this the golden age of television with streaming and so many avenues and outlets. Can you talk about some of both the opportunities that are out there, but also the challenges for the media industry as people change the way they consume the product? Well, it's really hard to get noticed. It's really hard to have a big primetime network hit. Um, sports is the one thing that, you know, conquers all. But but in the general entertainment space, it's very, very difficult to um, to have a a big broadcast network hit. You know, I'm grateful that you know, we have Hells in its 22nd season and Ninja in its 15th and, and a bunch of other shows that are long running shows. Um, but I, I know it's possible to have a, I know, I certainly know it's possible to have a hit, a hit television show. I don't know how many shows that they're going to be out there that last that long, you know, that go that long anymore. I just, it's, it's very hard for me to see that, but I know it's possible. It's definitely possible to have a bigger network hit. However, I believe that you've got to really take risks and you've got to go very high concept. Anything that's derivative or anything that feels like a Hell's Kitchen ripoff or a Ninja ripoff or a Bachelor ripoff or a Survivor ripoff does not work. So stop doing that. That does not work. Everything that we're talking about with networks nowadays are things that are very different than what's on the air. Just like Hell's Kitchen was. 2004, no successful network food shows on television. No one knows who Gordon Ramsay was. And it was a big gamble. The show sat on the shelf for six months until we asked, begged to get to get it on the air. Ninja Warrior, well, you know the story. Never, there has never been an obstacle course show in prime time. So I believe that the next great idea is coming from something like that on a broadcast. Listen, Mass Singer, not our show, big risk. It worked. You know? And you know, as far as streaming goes, there's a ton of opportunities for us as producers. That's the good news, is that, you know. There are years when certain certain genres, or when I when I think back on the past, I should say, but 
um, like 10 years ago, you know, this game shows are in or documentaries are in and, you know, genres come and go. Now everything's in, everything's in. So you just got to find a place, you know, where to put it. And, uh, and that's exciting. And we love working, you know, we love working with everybody. You know, I do the floors lava with Netflix and, you know, I have a, pro a project coming up with Roku on, uh, with the WWE, uh, which is kind of like a hard knocks of the WWE hard knocks, like the HBO show in terms of oh, style. Jason, Jason is going to want you back on to talk about that. Jeff, I didn't ask him, okay, but <laughs> one of his biggest success stories of American Ninja Warrior, Casey Canizero, is now one of their stars on yeah. Monday Night Raw. And so yeah. I didn't go there, Jeff, but I could have. So, Arthur, I spared Jeff for that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, I'm, K Casey changed the sport of Ninja. You know, she just changed at that moment when she goes up the, the warp wall, all five feet of her, 98 pounds. No woman had ever climbed the warp wall on American Ninja Warrior, but no one under five six had ever climbed the warm wall. Warp, warp and wall. or woman, man or woman. So it was just it was just insane, and she changed it. You know, women enrollment went up thirty to forty percent the next year, and our ratings went up. And 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 because all of a sudden this little show that was starting to work on NBC, you know, she was on the Today Show, and people were saying, "What is this thing?" And now. You know, it's so funny. You know, we came from a male network. NBC, when they first heard about this act of synergy, was like, you know, this is a guy show. And it's not. It's a family show. Kids watch the show. You know, it's so funny to me. Um, when I say funny, I mean funny, exciting to me that Ninja is now, it's now a sport. That kids now, I hear this all the time. It goes, I'm, I'm, I don't play soccer. I do Ninja. I go, are you kidding me? I mean, the ninja gyms that are all over the country and, and you know, ninja birthday parties. And there's ninja coaches, like there's baseball coaches. That's it's, what my six-year-old wants to do. He wants me to find him a ninja class to go I, and be in. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> so, great. look, we, we really appreciate you giving us a little bit of your time to tell your story. Before you go, though, we always talk to, to people in sports about how they use their platforms to to better the communities they're in. And you're doing that through the Reach Foundation. Can you tell us a little bit about the Reach Foundation before you go? Yeah, I mean, essentially, um, you know, like I said, I started it when, uh, you know, I never did this book to make money. I did this book to get the message out there and to inspire people. And, you know, with that in mind, I said, you know what, I'm going to set up a foundation. And I, you know, the advance, you know, you know, when you're an author, you get an advance. I was lucky to get an advance on the book. And immediately I took the advance and put it into the foundation. And hopefully if the book does well enough and people buy it, then we'll get some more money. And that'll all go into the foundation. It'll probably become my family foundation because um, that's the way I see it going. And uh, but essentially um, the, the foundation gives money to um, half a dozen or so charities. All, all of who lift people up in some way so that they can reach in their own life. Um, and um, yeah, and that's it. I mean, you know, one of the great gifts happened to me and I, I, I you know, I appreciate you letting me on, letting me on and, and, and tell and sharing this story, you know, before the, before the book had come out, which was last week, um, a couple of months earlier, I did the audio book. And so I'm sitting there doing the audio book and and it's you know it's it's four days it's seven hours a day and the one person who has no choice to to hear your book is the audio engineer. Everybody listening today and you guys you have a choice you could buy the book you could not buy the book, um, but the audio engineer he has no choice. It's his job to sit there and listen to the book. 
And every day I go in there and the guy's, you know, doesn't say much. He's, you know, you're popping your peas or you stand a little closer to the mic. You stand far away from your mic. And I'm going, I'm doing my thing. He goes up for lunch. I go up for lunch. We don't go out together. It's okay. He's doing his job. And and I, you know, at the end of the session, I, I'm I'm packing up my stuff, and he, you know, he comes over to me and he goes, "You changed my life." And I go, "What are you talking about?" And and he goes, "I realized I wasn't reaching enough. I was so inspired by your book that that I've decided I'm changing the course of direction of what I'm doing with my life." And he, he goes, "I I I just want to do more." And and listening to you, you know, and it goes on and it goes on and on and on. And I, I was kind of overwhelmed and, you know, I hugged the guy, maybe, maybe a little bit too forward, but I hugged him (laughs) because I was so like, I was so like, wow, that's amazing. What a blessing. And honestly, guys, you know, and I may have said this before, I don't know, because I'm rambling, but this is what I want to do with this chapter of my life. This is where, you know, this is what I want to do. And so the book, I hope, hopefully it inspires people. You know, and and um, hey, listen, if you use the book as a doorstop, you're still helping charity. Come on, man. So, there you go. Uh, That's the pitch. <laughs> Help charity. Make my book a doorstop. The book is Reach Hard Lessons and Learn Truths from a Lifetime in Television. Arthur, Arthur Smith, continued success. And thanks so much for giving us the time to hear all about it. Well, thank you guys for letting me ramble and having me on. I appreciate you. You know, I'm I'm thankful for all of the different guests that we get to have, the people that we get to explore, the world of sports, the ups and downs, the ride that we get to take with you, our listeners, the time that I get to spend with Jeff, who today is probably watching the Flyers game someplace with his son, enjoying time. Uh, We hope that you all enjoyed your time over this holiday. We can't wait to keep talking sports with you as, as these seasons roll on. We've got lots of fun teams that we'll be able to talk about, and we look forward to joining when we talk about it all. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Make sure to join us next Friday night to help you start your weekend in style. Have a great one, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.